Welcome to the Highway Church Podcast. We're excited that you would join us today and hope you're encouraged by the message you hear. If you'd like to know more, visit our website, highway.com.au. Oh, it's so good to be here with my Highway family. Um, if you're the type that likes following actual Bible, Revelation chapter 3, we're going to get to that um, in just a second. A couple things before we get started. Um, it's so good to be back here with my Highway family. I just love you so much. Thank you, Byron and Ann, um, and the team here uh, for believing in me early. I think uh, the, first, the first time I ever came by here was 2005, and that's a long time ago. Uh, on that note, I do want to give honor uh, to some people who are our guests today. Um, Ian and Diane Slack are here in the room, and they, if you don't know them, um, they're just wonderful people. They, uh, they're the directors for Jerry Savelle, and, um, and they were my second booking of all time. And so you don't get to where you're going unless people believe in you before everybody does. And I just really, really appreciate Byron and Ann and the team here and, and Ian and Diane. And just, it just made such good friends. Uh, two things before, uh, before we get moving on. Um, after this is over, um, I have a small table set up in the back right. Um, now, you're going to have to, considering the crowd right now, um, this is amazing. Uh, you're going to have to really, pref- you're going to have to prefer one another. And, you know, I don't know, be a, be a Christian. And, um <laughs> And so and on the back right there, we, we have our teaching resources and audio and video there in USBs. If you're wondering why we carry those around with us is because we make a lot of money from it. And, and the reason we do that is because we live with the conviction that we're not simply called to go to heaven when we die. We're called to bring heaven to every place we see hell here. And so uh, we use the profit from that to fund our missions in the world. Our, our missions of choice are three children's homes in China that look after children with mental disabilities, um, two in Hinyang, one in Changsha. We also have a, uh, a ministry in Cape Town that works with the local government there um, as a viable diversion option to Pulsmore Prison. We, we find it disgusting to tell women you shouldn't sell your body if that's their only option to make money. What people need is not moral platitudes. What they need is options, compassion, education, training. The word for that is resurrection. Um, the word for that is, is that your tomorrow is not simply a repeat of yesterday because we just walked in your life. And so um, there's so many new things since the last time I was here. I won't, I won't go through them all. I've got, a, I've got a whole series back there on the book of Revelation because I got too embarrassed for words for what particularly Pentecostals were putting on the internet about that book. Uh, so I just went through that. I have a, there's a six-hour short course back there on how to approach the Bible in a more reasonable way. Uh, my friend Pastor Wayne Alcorn helped me film that. That was really, really, that came off really well. Also, church leaders asked me to handle the whole sex and sexuality thing. Um, I, my master's degree is in that topic. I know it sounds like I'm making a joke. My master's is in sex. I know. I am a theoretical expert, right? In theory, I'm the best. Um, in, in, in practice, pretty much crap, but in theory, you're right. And uh, hey, spoiler alert, spoiler alert, there's nothing in there about actual sex. It's not a technique manual. Okay, that, that would be four minutes long. It's, it's actually an 11-part series on how to think about that topic. Uh, I've had it beta tested with moms of 12-year-olds, and it's, it, it's, it's really good. There's also a brand-new series where I, I preach through the book of Romans. Um, again, a horrendously misused book. And uh, I think, I think you, all I ask you to do is come by, um, and let me put something in your hands. I'll change the way you look at God. You put something in our hands. It helps us feed, clothe, shelter, educate. One other thing before we get going, I'd like to give everybody an authentic, um, if you know me, um, and most of you would, um, I always put the most special thing aside for the evening meeting. Uh, The reason is I can invite everybody in the morning back, and the people who come at night, they just come. Um, I truly believe that tonight's message is 
essentially important for us to get it right, not to miss our opportunity in this next generation, in this next season. And um, I mean, I've, I've been asked by request to do it at some of the bigger national conferences in the world. And so, and tonight I'm gonna bring it here. And so really, um, would you consider coming at five? It's only like an hour and 10 minute service. Uh, give us an hour and 10 minutes of your life tonight. I promise you it'll change your life. If it, if it doesn't, I'll personally, out of my own pocket, pay you back for whatever the ticket costs to come tonight. And so it's a really stress-free sort of situation. Um, so my job's to open the Bible today, and um, um, hello to all of our Highway family that are online. Um, my, uh, my name's Shane, and uh, I'm part of the family here. And um, when they bring me in, they want me to open Scripture, and uh, I take that really seriously. Anytime I do that, I want Jesus to get bigger, the cross to work better, the resurrection to be central, and Scriptures to get bigger, not smaller. I hope that's your experience um, with this today. Um, when I open the Bible, I just ask two questions, really. One, what happened? And then two, more importantly, what's happening in me right now because of what happened? And so I want us to explore a key theme that I think is critical. This morning is a message around, it's actually part one to tonight, to be honest with you, if I think about it. Let me tell you why I resurrected this message. So I was on the way to Chinchilla, which I'll be there tomorrow night, actually, unless the fire prevents it. I'll be there, I'll be there tomorrow night. And so I'm driving out to Chinchilla, and the podcast is on random. And, uh, and there was this guy that has a Ph.D. in social anthropology. Uh, whether, whether or not he was religious or not, he certainly made no issue of it. I, 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 he wasn't talking about that. He was simply talking about the anthropological responses to pandemics. How do human beings act when things go bad on a worldwide scale? And uh, it was brilliant, actually. He went back through the last eight great pandemics. 251 was a smallpox pandemic. 336, historians universally agree that 336 AD was the worst year to ever be alive. Uh, the reason is a volcano erupted over Iceland. No one knew where Iceland was at that point. And the volcanic ash made the sky of, Yor of Europe go dark for two years. It was a real, it was a real nightmare. Um, the Justinian plague, the bubonic plague, the Black Death, the Spanish flu, of course, COVID. Here's, here's why it matters to us. He talked for an hour. Here's the part that matters to us. So what he said was, is at the end of every great pandemic in the history of the world, what you have is a very predictable three-year pattern where people for three years get suddenly reinvigorated and reinterested in matters of faith and spirituality. Now, now, what that means is, is that from June 2023 to June 2026 in Australia, there's going to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity where people are going to be interested in matters of faith and spirituality. Uh, that doesn't mean they'll necessarily come to church. They might be addressing you at your work. They, they might be asking you uh, as a neighbor at a barbecue or something. But, but it gives us a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to reclaim the beauty of certain words that have lost their beauty. Words like Christian. That word's not pretty. And don't blame either. It's not the left's fault. It's not the woke's fault. It's our fault. Anytime someone asks me now, are you a Christian? I just always say the exact same thing. Because if they ask me if I'm a Christian, that means they don't know me. And they're trying to get to know me. They say, are you a Christian? I just always say, I, I don't know. I have no idea if I'm a Christian. And I hold my face. And then I wait for them to say, well, they'll say, what do you mean you don't know? That's a yes or no question. I'm like, no, it's not, because I don't know what you think a Christian is. So why don't you tell me what you think a Christian is, and then I'll tell you if I'm not. And 95% of the time, I'm not a Christian. <laughs> you wouldn't believe what people, if you just take the time to listen to people instead of judging them, you wouldn't believe the things that people think Christians are. Here are real examples. Christians are the anti-climate change people. Is that what we want to be known for? 
in America, Christians are the Republicans. They think Trump's the new Messiah. Really? Is that what we want to be known for? Are you serious? Like, oh, Christians are the ones that can't wait for the world to end. What? Listen, hold on to something, okay? As a Christian, we're not supposed to be known for our opinions about climate change, sex, politics, health, vaxes, and we're certainly not supposed to be known for our amateur predictions of doom. Christians are supposed to be known for their belief in Jesus as evidenced by their love for the world. The question is, how does that work? Like, look, please don't mishear me, but, but please have an opinion about whatever you want. Clim- have an opinion about climate. Have an opinion about sex. Have conviction about sex. That's fine. Uh, put, put it on a flag if you want. Just put it on a little toothpick flag. Let the main flag be our belief in Jesus as evidenced by our love for our world. Um, you know, Christians aren't supposed to be weaponizing Scripture on the Internet against people who have no emotional connection to Scripture. That doesn't, that doesn't make any sense. So, so, so the question is, 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 what's a technology that we need to come back to to take advantage of this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity? Because I don't want us to waste it. And I, I want to go back to the oldest technology in church history. According to the historian Alan Creeder, who wrote the most exhaustive work on the growth of the church in the first 300 years, he said that the primary symbol of the church in the first 300 years was not the cross. It was a table. That the way Christians changed the world was in a world with nine layers of class system. You realize murder was not illegal in Jesus' day as long as they were less class than you? Like, Christians changed the world. Full birth abortion was not illegal in Jesus' day. It was the Roman Empire. Let me explain full birth abortion. You have a healthy child. You take them by the feet and you bash their head against a rock. Or you throw them on the rubbish dump. It was called exposure. Why? Because if you brought somebody into the world that was fundamentally less valuable than somebody else, it was okay to kill them. That was the Roman Empire. That's Jesus' world. So when Christians say, oh, can you believe how bad this world's getting? Compared to when? Is God done redeeming the world? No. Is it better? Yes. If you're a woman today, it's better than 1950 or 1850 or 1550. If you're black today, it's better than 1950 or 1850. Is God done redeeming race relations? No. Is it better? Yes. If you need to go to the dentist today, it's better. In 1950, number one selling cough medicine in 1900, and this is true, was liquid heroin. It was legal. A hundred years ago, liquid heroin was legal. You could buy it from the store, and it was incredibly effective. It's like, oh, look, Billy's not coughing anymore. Come to think of it, Billy's not doing anything anymore. It's just better. I had to have a colonoscopy in February. I'm so glad it was 2023. Not 1953, where they just shoved something like that up there and had to look around. You know, like, oh. All right, buddy, just breathe through it. Breathe through I know it hurts. Just better. Nothing's worse than 100 years ago. Nothing except pollution. And that's because we invented the internal combustion engine, you know, which solved, I don't know, world hunger. It solved a problem and created one. 
To be fair, we're getting divorced more now. There's more divorces. That's sad. I get it. That's just because we're living longer due to medical advancements. In Jesus' day, they died at 32, so till death do us part was more doable. <laughs> now you got to live with them to 84, which is better. Christians came into the world and made the world a better place, which, which should make us stop and ask two questions. Number one, if the whole world converted to the way we're thinking about God, would the world be better? And if the answer is no, we need to shift. The problem is never Jesus. I, I'm telling you, I've, I've had 100,000 conversations with young people who are like, I'm not a Christian anymore. I just say, why? They always say the same thing. I just don't believe that anymore. To, to which I always just say the same thing. What, what is it when you were told you had to believe to be a Christian? You know, not one time ever, not once ever has it ever had anything to do with Jesus. It always has something to do with some weird approach to end times. Like, it's just not what we're supposed to be known for. The historian Alan Creter said that Christians changed the world by giving everybody the same value. It was a revolutionary thought. To us, it's obvious. But the Christians changed the world by everyone, class one, class nine, ate at the same table. They were welcome in the same table. So I want to talk to you about that. Because I think what we've done is we've traded tables for tablets. And that is something we've got to get away from. This is Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone, Republican, Democrat, labor, liberal, Male, female, slave, free. This is revolutionary. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I'll come in and sort out all their views on every social issue on earth. No! I'll come in and eat with them and they with me. This was all about the technology of the table. The table, this is so important. The table is the technology that allows us to accept someone without feeling like we have to affirm everything they ever do. The differentiation is not opposition. Jesus mastered the art of accepting anyone as they are without feeling that that necessarily meant that he affirmed everything they did. See, the question is, people say, I just don't know what this generation wants these days. These people these days, I just don't. What do you mean? They want what everybody wants. They want an atmosphere or an environment where they can have intimacy. What's intimacy? Intimacy is two things simultaneously. It's being fully known and fully accepted at the same exact time. And that's a rare thing. That is not, that is valuable. I mean, there's a lot of people who are fully known, but because they're fully known, they're definitely not fully accepted. And then there's a lot of people that are fully accepted, but the only reason they're fully accepted is because they're hiding something. What human beings are longing for is an environment that says, can I come just as I am and be fully accepted without people feeling they have to affirm everything I do? That way the Holy Spirit can do all the convicting and all the changing in my life. And the technology that made that, that possible was the table. The question is, what must I do to be fully known and fully accepted? And the answer was, evidently God just wants to eat. <laughs> Like, let God get in your life. He's going to sort out all your views on social issues and you know, he'll make you more like us, as if that would help. Like, most Christians could do Jesus a favor and never speak of him ever. Thank you. I mean, it's a prayer I'm praying every day. 
with, every, with in any, any medium in is, Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. It's, it's just not good. So, so quick, a, a, quick, a couple minutes of Bible nerddom here. So, so the, way, the, the way Hebrew language works is on three-letter roots. And so there's some related words. So the word meal is the word shul. The, the word table is the word shulkan. So you eat a shul on a shulkan, right? But then there's only like 8,000 words in ancient Hebrew, so one word had to mean a lot of different things. So, so here's a few things shulkan meant. It meant a table. Number two, it meant, it meant reconciliation. So the word reconcile and the word table... It's the same exact word without one letter difference. It's also the word lambskin. The, the, the reason is, is, is that in Egypt, when they didn't have tables, they'd kill a lamb and they would clean the skin and they would spread it out like a picnic blanket. So the original table was a, a, a lambskin, like a picnic blanket. So, so can you see where like in Psalms where it says, we all know it's the blood of a slain lamb that gives us reconciliation? You could easily translate that. When we kill a lamb, we have a table to eat on, right? It's that. There's also a related word. You could see how the S-H, the L, the C-H, like that, that they're, they're showing up in every word. The, the word forgiveness is the word shalak, which is to forgive or literally to remove weight. The table was a place where you could lay aside the weight and get a clean slate. It was the technology that allowed the church to grow exponentially when it was illegal. Like, if you got caught practicing Christianity under Nero, he impaled you. He had the army hold you down. If you don't know what that is, they took a stick and they ran it up your butt. Until you died of internal injuries. And then once you died from internal bleeding, they would plant you. And then they would set you on fire as a human candlestick. That was Jesus' world. That was Paul's world. Like, oh, do you believe it? Look, whatever your problem is with Albo... It ain't Nero. Like if Paul woke up today in Ormo, he'd think he was in heaven. Think about, it, he'd be, he'd be, think about the questions he'd ask. Who, who owns you? Where's your owner? Oh, I don't have an owner. We don't own each other. But you're a woman without an owner? Yes. That's amazing. Who runs the country? A guy named Albo. Where's Albo's temple? Where do we have to go worship him? And give 12% of our income just for the divine... Oh, no, 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 no. Albo's elected. What's elected? It's, it's, it's where everybody gets a say in who runs the thing. What? Where's the store where you buy underclass children and force them to do horrible things in the local pagan temples? Oh, no, no, no. That's highly... You can't buy and sell. It happens, but it's very illegal. And, and if you got caught, you go to jail. Hey, Paul would think, well, God's not done. But man, he's done. It, we have come a long, long way. And the table was the technology that allowed you to have relationship with someone without necessarily affirming everything about that someone. That differentiation is not opposition. This is the technology we need to, to read. If, if the anthropologist is right, we have to have a technology where we can engage people not like us, fully accepting them as they are without feeling the pressure to affirm everything about them. The table allows that to happen. And to Jesus, the table was primary even over worship. Look, at this is Matthew 5. Therefore, this is Jesus Christ now. Therefore, if you're offering your gift at the altar and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar. 
First, primarily, go and be reconciled. In Jesus' world, that word is table. Go and be tabled. Have a meal with your brother. Then come back and offer your gift. In other words, Jesus' point of view was, what good does it do if you're worshiping with all your heart if all the world sees is us in conflict with each other? That doesn't make any sense. Or here's Paul's take on it. This is 2 Corinthians 5. Therefore, if anyone's in Christ, he's a new creation. The old is gone, the new has come. All this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and then gave us the ministry of our opinions on the internet. About No, gave us the ministry of the table that God was reconciling or inviting the whole world to his table. To himself in Christ by choosing, this is so important, by choosing not to count men's sins against them. That the table was the technology where although I can recognize your flaw, I'll never hold that against you, not at my table. Jesus, well, this changed the world. We, we have traded tables for tablets, which allows us to rant at people without the relationship to walk them through things. And that can't be. And now he has committed to us the message of reconciliation. What's the primary message of the church? You're invited to God's table. Just as you are right now. We fully accept you without any pressure to affirm everything about you. And, and this is a common theme in scripture. How, how about some rapid fire? Here we go. This is Genesis to Revelation table stuff. So there was this one time, there was this guy named Melchizedek, and uh, it was World War I, by the way. So what we call World War I was probably World War 17. It's war's been going on for a while. And in this story, there was five kings fighting four. That, that is World War I. And there's this guy named Melchizedek, and, and what happens is, is both sides are, are vying for Abraham's resources. And Abraham asked Melchizedek, whose side should I pick? And Melchizedek was, why choose a side? Why not set a table and invite everybody to a meal? There's this guy named Jacob, and Jacob misused the table. He abused it. Something that was supposed to bring reconciliation, he used the meal to trick his brother out of his birthright. And then there's all kinds of mess that goes on. Jacob ends up in Laban's place, and he falls in love with a woman, you know, and Laban's like, you got to work seven years for her, so he does, right? And then he ends up in the tent with the wrong woman, which leads to all kinds of questions like how much alcohol and mushrooms must have been involved to work seven years for a chick and she's the wrong girl. <laughs> Unless she was a twin, which is a whole nother set of cool, but nonetheless. <laughs> they end up in this conflict sandwich where Jacob and Laban are chasing, uh, Laban's chasing Jacob, Esau's coming, and, and instead of fighting a civil war, they spread out a table and they ate together. Psalm 23, he prepares a table before me in the presence of my enemies. If you're paying attention, that doesn't mean God will feed you and not people not like you. That means if you're paying attention, that God is always giving us the resources necessary to reconcile with people not like us. There's a guy named David. He takes over the kingdom and he's looking for descendants of Saul, which normally meant you would kill them so that you eliminate heirs. And he finds this crippled kid named Mephibosheth. The whole story is that Mephibosheth, the, the nurse was running and fell on Mephibosheth and, and his legs broke. And because medical technology wasn't very good back then, he was just crippled. And 
course, Mephibosheth thinks he's going to die. But David flips the script in 2 Samuel 9 and says, actually, forget about your disability. Disability and all, you'll always be welcome at my table. There's this guy named Joseph. Joseph had a tough go. He was a bit of a narcissist, to be honest, at first. He, you know, he had 11 brothers and he wasn't very wise. He, um, you know, he had dreams with haystacks bowing to him. So he calls a family meeting and he says, hey guys, I've had a vision from God. And in my vision, I'm standing and you're bowing. And, and he found out that no one likes a vision where you're standing and they're bowing. <laughs> and they sell him into slavery. It's a big 14-year problem. Like it's a big deal. And then they later need him to save their sorry rear ends from a famine. And so the, the roles are reversed and now he has all the power. And he has a choice. Do I use my power to get even or do I use my power to reconcile? And it's, it's a beautiful sort of culminating moment. And it, it, says, it says this, this is Genesis 43. Then Joseph hurried out and his compassion grew warm for his brothers. And, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and he wept. And then he washed his face and came out. And controlling himself, he said, serve the food. In other words... We can make this worse or we can make this better. How about let's use the technology of the table. Tablets ruin tables. You've all seen this. A family that's complaining about being disconnected, you know. So like, no, no, we're going out as a family tonight. Five of them sitting in a nice restaurant on the Gold Coast. What are all five of them doing? Looking at the tablet. Tablets allow us to rant without any responsibility for the reconciliation of the person we're ranting about. Ah! Yuck! Christianity is not an argument to win. It's a life to show. You know, share this meme on your Facebook wall if you're not ashamed of Jesus. Ah! The table was there. Hey, um, Passover. Uh, earlier, we took... Uh, you, I, I don't want to speak down to you, but I don't want to assume you know something you don't know, but the, the communion that we took is a, is a symbolic representation of Passover. Um, which was the last supper or the last meal Jesus had with his disciples before he was killed. And I want you to think about this. Who was there? Judas. Jesus' response to Judas's betrayal was, uh, you want to eat? You want, you want, you, you want to eat? Um, somebody asked me at a Q&A the other day, Shane, our church serves communion to children. I said, what's your question? They said, are you okay with that? I said, I'm lost. Like, why, why would we exclude children? And they said, because they, they can't understand it. They can't take it with reverence. The Bible says if you take it in an unworthy manner, you'll die, which is Homer Simpson hermeneutics. If you, uh, if, if, if you go back and look at that story, taking communion in an unworthy manner was the rich eating first and leading the scraps for the poor, which missed the whole point of the table. Um, and I was like, ma'am, with all respect, I honor whatever your conviction is, but uh, Jesus served communion to Judas. Which leads me to this question, who have we excluded from our table because they've hurt us? Or even more immature, we just disagree with their politics? Or, oh, yuck. Or, or remember there's this group of people, they get out of slavery and into freedom. And, um, and what's the first thing they do? <laughs> They build a gold cow. <laughs> That's a massive stuff up. Like, they build this gold cow, and God, God, now God's got to respond, right? 
God's got to tell them off. He's got to judge them for their idolatry. But, but he doesn't. Here's God's response. It says in Exodus 24, And Moses and Aaron and Nadab and Abihu and the 70 elders of Israel went up and saw the God of Israel. And under his feet was something like a table made of sapphire clear as the sky itself. But God did not raise his hand against these leaders um, of the Israelites. They saw God and they ate and they drank and they didn't die. <laughs> in other words, God's response to their idol worship was, you want to eat? <laughs> you you want to make this right or... Are you done destroying yourself? Or I, I, I'm just, like, I want to get you back without paying you back, for sure. Um, like, one of the big problems they had with Jesus was he had dinner with tax collectors and sinners. It says, well, while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came. Well, of course they did. They were his friends and ate with him. And when the Pharisees saw this, they, they asked the disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Which for us is an odd question. But in their world, that meant Jesus was saying, I accept them. Hold on to something, right? Religious people in the first century couldn't get their head around accepting a person without necessarily affirming everything about them. I know, not relevant at all today. <laughs> Jesus says, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not your sacrifice. In other words, I'd rather show them mercy than be a part of your ritual system. I'm not playing that game. Remember the feeding of the 5,000? They're like, what do we do? He's like, you feed them. It's the ministry of the table. Or one of my favorites is the Canaanite woman. Like, she was from Sidon. Just a quick Bible thing, okay? Um, there are eight, eight, eight. That's a lot. There are eight verses in the Bible that curse Sidonites. Eight. That's more than whatever your favorite sin to pick on is. Eight verses say God can't stand Sidonites. And then, of course, when you really understand what God is like in Christ, how does Jesus encounter the Sidonite? He doesn't curse her. He doesn't, he doesn't banish her. In Ezekiel, it says God would kill them and strip them naked and leave them ashamed in the street. Uh, turns out, no. Um, when you found out what God was actually like, Jesus ate with her. Watch the account. The people with him calls her a dog, which was a racial slur. And they had a Bible verse to justify it. And watch what it says. She says, yes, Lord, but even dogs get the crumbs that fall from the master's table. In other words, watch what Jesus says. Jesus says, woman, you have great faith. Like, are you serious? Like, like, these people have the whole table and it's not enough. And you have such faith, all you need is a crumb to realize you're reconciled. This is what we're talking about. Remember there was this one time, Jesus is at a table and, um, and he's with the rich. And they finish their meal and there's so much left over that Jesus says, what should we do with all the leftovers? And the rich say, we don't know. And Jesus is like, okay, um, <clears throat> there's a lot of poor people outside your gate. I wonder what we should do with our extra food. <laughs> Have you ever had someone just not pick up what you were putting down, right? <laughs> and they said, oh, no, we don't eat with people like that. Why? Because in their world, that would be calling them acceptable. And Jesus is like, is that your final answer? And they're like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He says, okay, um, there's this guy, he's a rich man, and he's overlooking a poor man outside of his gate. 
And when he dies, he's the one that goes to hell. <laughs> it's like Rabbi Kung Fu stuff, right? <laughs> the, the only time Jesus ever said someone went to hell, ever, was a rich man who overlooked a poor man and didn't welcome people not like him to their table. Why? Well, if you can't do that, even if you go to heaven, you're going to think it's hell. Jesus said, heaven is a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. <laughs> In other words, heaven's a place where you accept people not like you without affirming everything about them. <laughs> well, what if you're a racist? My great-grandfather was illiterate. I'm not mad at him. No one taught him to read. He was a moonshiner. He made his living running illegal liquor across state lines. He, he, he was also a member of the Ku Klux Klan. He was also on the board of the church. <laughs> My great-grandfather was an illiterate, moonshining racist. I can tell you his full faith was in Jesus' work on the cross to forgive him. He died in heart surgery. Somebody said, do you think he went to heaven? Okay, first of all, that's above my pay grade and not my point. My point is, my point is even if he went to heaven, would he like it? So my great-grandfather wakes up in heaven at a table with every tribe, tongue, and race. Is he in heaven or hell? <laughs> to, to the racist, heaven is hell. That's why Jesus' invitation was never once, never to make sure you go to heaven when you die. I'll give you 10 grand to show me any time Jesus stopped the message and invited people to pray a prayer to make sure they could go to heaven when they die. Not Jesus' message. His message was more profound than that. His message was, have heaven so established in you now that when you do walk into heaven, you don't get whiplash. Yeah. Oh, oh, you're rich people overlooking poor people? Won't, you, won't, you won't eat with people not like you? Uh, people like that, when they die, they end up in hell. Um, the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily... In other words, always give me a supply to make sure I can reconcile with people. Not, not like me. <laughs> By the way, I just learned this, so I'm going to ask you to learn it with me. Um, give us today our daily bread. I can read Greek. And um, I, I can tell you that the word daily isn't there. It, the, the word is epiupsios, which is tomorrow. So here's what Jesus actually said. Father, give me today tomorrow's bread. In, in other words, I understand why they translate it daily, like today, tomorrow, the next day. But, but, but what if, it, Lord, give me today, tomorrow's bread. In other words, Jesus said, give me a supply today that removes my fear of lack of supply tomorrow. Because until you're set free from lack, you're still in jail. Oh, um, or John 21. Well, Jesus, Jesus teaches us how to respond to people who betray us. So John 21, there's a group of people who abandoned him while he was being crucified. And what was his response? He cooked breakfast on the beach for the very person who denied him in his time of need. And he doesn't even bring it up. He's like, do you still love me after all this? And if you still love me after all this, we're going to go change the world. Jesus' response to betrayal was, want to eat? It's kind of a big theme. This is the, the, the end of the Bible. This is Revelation 19. And, and the angel said to me, write this, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the word, true words of God. In other words, the Bible ends with an invitation to a table. 
This is the last chapter of the scripture. This is what it says. Down the middle of the great street of the city, on each side of the river stood a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit, yielding fruit every month. And the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nation. In other words, the Bible ends with this eternal invitation. If you're done destroying yourself, you want to eat? <laughs> Tables are where we lay aside the weight and get a clean slate. It allows us to accept people fully without having to affirm everything they do. And we got a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to get back to that technology and abandon the ranting on the tablet. Now, great sermons aren't meant to be agreed with nor disagreed with. They're meant to be wrestled with. So let's do this. Four questions. One, when's the last time you responded to the Lord's knocking? When's the last time God's been knocking on the door of your heart and you responded? Or you didn't? What are you scared of? He just wants to eat. He doesn't want to hurt you. Let's say it this way. Number three, are you committed to the reconciliation of all things or just your own salvation? Isaiah says it's a big thing. It's a light thing, actually, to be saved. The bigger thing is to be my salvation to everybody. But perhaps the best question for today is, who do you need to cook breakfast for? Is there anyone that you need to cook breakfast? You need to have the meal and lose the idea that we got to agree on everything to show the world what it's like to live at peace. I wonder if we'd be willing to, to wrestle with this question. How many of us just participated with worship, but we know there's someone in the room we have something against? Maybe before we leave today, we can go be reconciled. What does that look like? It looks like this. Although I might not agree with you, I fully accept you and invite you to my table. We have a choice in the next three years, my brothers and sisters. Tablets or tables? Let's choose well. So Lord Jesus, let no one ever reject you because of the way I'm presenting you. Would you speak to our heart about a person we need to invite to our table? Would you speak to us about people we've excluded from our table? And give us the courage to include them. Maybe you're here and you need to respond to God knocking on the door of your heart. You could just know it now. He's just, he's saying, hey, surrender to me. Like, and, and you might hear words like saved or, you know, like, I don't even know what that means. And I, don't, and I don't blame you. Most people, they don't really have a good definition of that anyway. So let me see if I can, when we say saved or surrender to Jesus or give your life to Christ, here's what we mean. We mean today I'm gonna choose to trust Jesus's version of my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. And I'm gonna surrender to that. Maybe you need to make that decision. If you need words to say, you can say something like, Lord Jesus, today I choose to trust your version of my life story instead of the one I've been writing on my own. Give me the grace to live that out. Would you look this way? Thank you so much for letting me be part of your morning. I hope Jesus got bigger, the cross worked better, the resurrection of central scriptures got bigger and smaller. Please choose tables over tablets. And please, from my heart, give me an hour tonight my part's not an hour. The whole service is like an hour and 10 minutes. Give us an hour tonight. It is critical what we're going to address tonight. I promise you I'm going to give you language that will help you present Jesus in a much better way. Until I see you tonight, grace and peace, everybody.
Thanks for joining us. We hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you'd like to get in contact with us or find out more about Highway Church, go to highway.com.au.